Psalm 22, the topic, Jesus cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Directed the mocking crowd to consider its words as prophecy being fulfilled. The title of our message, he forsakes me, he forsakes me not. Let's have a word of prayer. <laughs> Father, thanks for our Sunday and thanks for giving us the opportunity to worship you through song. I pray that our hearts were made glad and rejoiced. And now we want to pay attention to your word. We want to see you uh, magnified, glorified, lifted up, not just on the cross, Lord, but into heaven and in our hearts. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Time travel is a staple of sci-fi. In the blockbuster Marvel movie Avengers Endgame, the heroes pulled off what they called a time heist. There's a great comic sequence where in their attempts to wade through the so-called rules of time travel, the heroes list iconic time-bending movies. Back to the Future features prominently in their discussions, as does Star Trek, Terminator, Time After Time, Quantum Leap, uh, Hot Tub Time Machine, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Psalm 22 is a sort of time-bender. When Jesus quoted it as he was being crucified, it transported his immediate audience back from the present, at least in their minds, over a thousand years to when David wrote it. It sends us back from the present two places, first to its writing, and also second to the crucifixion to see and hear that crowd. And then it sends us all future to the crowning of Jesus to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, reigning over the much promised and anticipated 1000 year kingdom of heaven on the earth. Jesus didn't just quote from Psalm 22, he lived it out before their very eyes. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Psalm 22 invites you to listen at Jesus' crucifixion. And number two, Psalm 22 incites you to long for Jesus' crowning. Let's take a look at listening at the crucifixion in verses 1 through 18. Now, most of you know that the Bible wasn't always divided into chapters and verses the way it is today. If that was still the case, instead of inviting you to open your Bibles to Psalm 22, I'd have gotten up and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you would know exactly where we were. Since most Second Temple period Jews had memorized all of the Psalms, they'd be sent to it by Jesus quoting its opening. Uh, you might think, wow, that's a lot, 150 Psalms, but I'll bet most of you know more than 150 Psalms right now if you start. Don't, don't and it'll bother your brain later this afternoon, you know, but, but uh, probably you know a lot more than that, and so it's no big deal, but this is how they would be directed to Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 1, to the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? David delivered this song to one of the chief musicians that he had appointed for the tabernacle in order to be produced for public worship. It seems like it was set to a popular tune. I was thinking about that and I did some research on Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote the words to Amazing Grace in 1772. It was 60 years before the poem was put to the tune to which it is sung today. And there's some historical evidence that it was sung to various tunes throughout the years until it finally found a home. You've probably heard it sung to House of the Rising Sun. Has anybody heard that? Amazing Grace, it, it works really well. That was popular for a while among worship groups, not ours. 
uh, for, luckily, uh, because it's, you know, it, 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 but anyway, it, it, it goes perfectly. It can also be sung, and I think the original lyric might be Gilligan's Island. Right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Was blind, but now I see. When we've been there 10,000, you get, you get the idea, right? Yeah, okay. How about, now wait, I'm not done. How about the Marine Corps hymn? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. When we've been there, you know, right? And finally, uh, there's actually dozens of songs that it works with, but one of my favorites, because it's so beautiful, America the Beautiful. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> so this song was Day of the Dead, I mean Dawn of the Dead, uh, or Dawn of the Deer, rather. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Many eloquent and moving sermons have been preached on the moment God the Father forsook Jesus on the cross. Usually a major point is that our holy God cannot bear to look upon sin. And so he turned away, leaving his son to bear the brunt of his wrath. Very dramatic, but it's not true. God has been looking upon sin ever since the Garden of Eden. He's looking upon sin right now. And not just yours, but everyone's. What about the verse that says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? Well, the idea that the Bible is trying to convey is that Jesus substituted himself for us. One theologian put it clearly like this. He said, while Jesus never committed a sin personally, he was made to be sin for us substitutionally. Just as the righteousness that is imputed to Christians in justification is extrinsic to them, so the sin that was imputed to Christ on the cross was extrinsic to him and never in any sense contaminated his essential nature. The innocent was punished voluntarily as if guilty, that the guilty might be gratuitously rewarded as innocent. So one of the major points this author makes, this theologian makes, is that Jesus could not have been literally made sin or else it would have polluted his sinless nature. And so what he did is substitute himself as the sinless son of God and sin remained extrinsic. So God didn't need to turn away from him because he had been made some kind of lump of human sin. God the Father could not forsake his son. After all, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you believe that they can uh, split, then you've imploded the Trinity. And so it's a real problem. More importantly, the Psalm itself makes it clear that Jesus was not forsaken. Down in verse 24, he said, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. So there was no period of time in which Jesus was forsaken. If you want to say that he felt forsaken in his humanity, I still think that's a little bit out there, but it actually misses the point. God the Father never forsook him. The crowd only thought him forsaken. And if you concentrate on the forsaking that never occurred, you're going to miss what is more powerful. You'll miss Jesus' point that not only was he the fulfillment of the person in the psalm, but the people at the cross were fulfilling exactly what the psalm predicted over a thousand years earlier. 
And so remember how they would memorize scripture and that they knew this entire psalm. And as he was being crucified and as the people were mocking and shaming him, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he went on through the entire psalm. And as we'll see, at some point, the people would have recognized that he was talking about them, that they were in this psalm. Two more remarkable things before we move on. The last words of Jesus on the cross were, it is finished. Interesting that the last words of Psalm 22 are, he has done this, which is a Hebrew equivalent to it is finished. There's a tradition that Jesus said, my God, my God, why has you forsaken me? And then recited this whole Psalm and all the subsequent Psalms until Psalm 31 verse five, which reads into your hands, I commit my spirit. I think that's very likely. What we have recorded in the Gospels as far as the sayings of Jesus from the cross doesn't mean he didn't say other things. You realize that we can't say that he did because it's not recorded, but we don't have everything that he might have said. And uh, it makes sense that he would start with Psalm 22 and read all the way through Psalm or rather recite all the way through Psalm 31. And speaking of that, I go so far to say that Jesus sung from the cross. Why not? These were songs after all. They weren't just poems. If you were dying and you wanted to sing Amazing Grace, you probably wouldn't just recite it. You'd probably sing it with joy in your heart. You wouldn't say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. You'd say, Amazing Grace, right? And you'd get into it. It'd be great. And so think about that. Just something to think about and devote on. David for sure felt forsaken. We all do at times, but if I told you God had forsaken me, would you really think he had? Would you say, yeah, Gene, that's true. I've noticed that. <laughs> You're just getting around to realizing you've been forsaken by God. That's a pretty obvious. No, you would immediately say that's not possible. Jesus said he would never leave you or forsake you. Verse two, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't hear. And in the night season, I'm not silent. David wrote prophetically, but he was definitely in a tight spot and crying out day and night to God. But you are, O holy, you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Trusted, trusted, trusted. Three times you see the word trusted. Despite the outward circumstances, the people of God trust in him, even praise him in their suffering not ashamed to suffer for him, knowing that he will ultimately deliver them. I particularly like the poetry of enthroned in the praises of Israel. We sing that, and that's a great song, and it comes from this psalm, obviously. Now, first, let me point out that the original application of this psalm was to God's covenant people, to Abraham's ethnic descendants, the nation of Israel. We'll see at the end of it that he has not forsaken Israel, as some would have you believe. But it is also applicable to us in the church age because our praise during suffering is also a throne God sits upon in this age. The overriding characteristic of this age is suffering and weakness generally that reveals the strength of God. Sometimes you think, you know, maybe I would have been better off in another era where there were more healings, more miracles. Uh, but that's just not the characteristic of the age that we're in. The church age, and it's verified all the way through the epistles, the church age is an age in which God says, now I'm going to magnify myself and glorify myself through the suffering of my people as they endure graciously 
And as they find sufficient grace, the world will know that I live. And, you know, the Lord always seeking different ways to save people throughout the Bible and uh, in different ages, offering them salvation, the same salvation by grace through faith, but in different ways, seeing different things. And in this age, it has to do with our suffering. And that's why we suffer, Uh, not because God brings it upon us, but because we live in a fallen world. God says, but I can use that. I can make all things work together for good because you love me and are the called according to my purposes. God will not forsake Israel as some would have you believe. He says in verse six, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Have You ever heard that before? Yeah, you've heard it in Matthew 27, 43. The crowd mocks Jesus saying, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Think of it for a moment. You're in that crowd and you're saying these words when Jesus begins to quote Psalm 22 and not very far into the Psalm, the very words you are speaking were predicted over a thousand years prior. What did he just say? I just said that. The Psalmist said that. What does that mean? And so even as they mocked him, Jesus was seeking to save these murderers. A thoughtful person would have been stunned by something as remarkable as that. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jesus was God come to earth in human flesh, born to a virgin by the power of God. As a man, he was cast upon God, meaning he depended upon him for protection. We talked about this at length last week. Imagine Jesus as a baby, not like boss baby in the movies where, you know, he could get up and do all kinds of stuff like a a secret agent or something like that. I mean, he was a baby. How does a baby protect himself from the most powerful man in the realm, Herod, who is a murderer who killed many in his own family and and was actively seeking the one who would be called king of the Jews? Well, God did it providentially. He gave Joseph a dream. He said, Joseph, here's a dream. You better pay attention to it. They're coming for you. Get down to Egypt. Then he gave him another dream, told him, come home from Egypt. And then he told him, but not there, over here. And so God had to provide for him, had to protect him throughout his life until he could go to the cross. It's, it's interesting. He had to keep him alive so that he could die. The devil was trying to kill him, but he had to keep him alive until he could die. And for most of Jesus' life, really, until he became somewhat of an adult, there's no way that he could protect himself. He had to be protected by God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Now, certainly we identify with this cry. There are times, even lifetimes, I would say, in which our only help will be spiritual. But as we read the next few verses, we'll see an even greater reason that help could only come from heaven. It says in verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Bashan is mentioned some 60 times in the Bible. It was a city on the east side of the Jordan River. Og, king of Bashan, was the last of a line of giants in the promised land that Israel was to conquer. Bashan was believed to be the land where the fallen angels who married the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6 called home for a time. It's sometimes referred to in Jewish literature as the gates of hell. And so that gives an interesting spin on Jesus' comments that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. 
It might surprise you, but there were offspring from the mating of angels and humans both before and after the global flood killed everyone but Noah and his sons and his wife and their daughters or their wives, I guess. I got stuck in there in the relationships. Verse four, this is Genesis six, four. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so the word itself tells us that, hey, the flood came because of all this wickedness and evil, and especially because there was this offspring of uh, fallen angels and and human women called the Nephilim, these giants, these, these persons of renown. But it also happened again, and you read of many giants in the promised land. There must have been another time post flood when fallen angels mated with the daughters of men. We don't have to be told because they're there. And it seems to peak around the time Joshua led Israel in conquest. It seems like it was a satanic strategy to defeat Israel. And you know what? It worked for a time. Because when Moses allowed the 10 spies to go into the land, what happened? They gave a bad report because there were giants in the land that made them look like grasshoppers. And they said, there's no way we can defeat those guys. Only Joshua and Caleb said, hey, calm down. The Lord is on our side. But as a result of their disobedience, it was 40 years before they went into the promised land. And so as a satanic strategy, it was pretty successful until Joshua led individuals like Caleb, who said, man, bring on the giants. I want the biggest one. I'll take them down because this is the Lord. Just to be clear, these guys weren't simply taller. They weren't special forces guys. The measurements of Og's bed are given to us in the book of Deuteronomy. His bed measures 13 and a half feet by six feet. Now, it could be he was a normal sized guy, I guess, and liked to roll around a lot in bed. Who knows? But this is way bigger than a California king, right? How big is a California king? Is it? Does anybody know offhand? And what is it? 10 by 10? You would know. I don't know what that means, but anyway. 10 by 10. So this is 13 and a half by six just for himself. And so he was a tall guy. He was, let's say he was 10 feet tall. Uh, these guys were definitely bad dudes, but the Lord took them down. Jesus was therefore revealing that there was a strong satanic presence at the cross. Now we would assume this, but this verifies it. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Who is the roaring lion? Well, it's one of the descriptions of Satan in the New Testament. So it could be that he was there and I'm, I wouldn't see where he'd be anywhere else. Crucifixion is mentioned in the history of man starting in the 6th century BC. David was born, we think, 1040 BC. That means his writings predated crucifixion by several centuries. It makes Psalm 22 all the more remarkable in that he accurately described the physical experiences of a person being crucified before crucifixion was conceived as a form of execution. It would have been hard to figure out what he was talking about uh, for the first 400 years of the life of this psalm because no method of death was known that would cause these various symptoms. But in verse 14, we read, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. Dehydration, bones coming out of joint, uh, these other things that are mentioned are the things that Jesus suffered on the cross. This is what happened to you when you were crucified. 
As far as his heart being like wax, this may be a poetic way of predicting the spear piercing his heart from which issued blood and water. Remember, as we're reading the Psalms, uh, these aren't written as doctrinal or historical necessarily. They contain doctrine and they're accurate historically, but they're poems, they're songs. They, they see things from a poetic point of view. And so it could be that we're talking about uh, the piercing of his side. Then in verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hand and my feet. That's an obvious reference to crucifixion. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. It's unlikely that Jesus would refer to the crowd as dogs, especially since they were mostly Jews and he loved them. This is likely another reference to the satanic presence, something like we would call the hounds of hell, that they were hellhounds around the cross. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Most secular historians say that this was not a regular custom. This isn't what happened all the time at crucifixion. It was quite simply a prophecy that we see fulfilled at the cross as the Roman soldiers did this precisely. You know, if there was any doubt in your mind as you witnessed the crucifixion that it was fulfilling prophecy, this dividing of the garments would have done it. So you're listening, you're at the cross, you're at the foot of the cross and you're mocking and jeering. And then Jesus begins to sing Psalm 22. And if you're paying attention, you think, oh, wow, he just, those lines from David sound familiar because I just spoke them. And you start to think, well, this is kind of freaky. If they divide his garments, that'll prove to me that this is perfect. What are they doing? They're dividing his garments. This, oh, it sends chills up my spine right now just thinking about it. A thoughtful person could have gotten saved at the cross that day, hearing prophecy. Listen to Jesus as he was being crucified. It's just as time-bending for a person hearing Psalm 22 today as it was in the first century. It's about me, Jesus was saying, coming to save you. Uh, He also incites you to long for his crowning. The psalm takes a dramatic new tone in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. Oh, my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Since Jesus died physically, it seems that the sword and the power of the dog and the lion's mouth and the horns of the wild oxen must all refer to spiritual things, to the spiritual foes from whom he was delivered. It reminds me of the death of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the latest uh, installment a few years ago, with all these crazy creatures and animals and demons around. That's what it was like in the spiritual realm. He was delivered, however, from them because the New Testament tells us in Colossians 2.15, he disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. The cross was the weapon of victory. His death on the cross defeated Satan and his forces. According to scholars, the last part of verse 21 breaks off from the rest and is a separate exclamation. You have heard. Jesus was certain he'd been heard and that his deliverance was certain. Death was being defeated. The devil and his forces were being vanquished. I won't even try to speculate on what it means that the God man died. But Jesus said, you have heard. And he could commit his spirit to his father as, as well as, as a result. Remember Jesus asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It seems somewhat rhetorical, I might say, because God had not forsaken him. He heard him immediately. Only the crowd thought that he was forsaken by God. 
When you are suffering in any way from an earthly perspective, you seem forsaken or abandoned. But something else is always going on. Something spiritual is always going on. You must believe in your heart that God could never leave you, never forsake you. And so cry out and believe that he has heard because he has. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. In the original context of the psalm, David had come through his trial and he wanted to give glory to God. So he called some sort of assembly to make his declaration. The king of Israel invites you to uh, rejoice with him. Maybe it was the very first performance of this psalm. And it's like, I don't know, I, I haven't watched a music video since forever. But I know there's a big, oh, the next music video or song is going to drop today. And everybody's like, okay, you know. And so David's like, hey, we're going we're gonna to have a special assembly. I'm going to give a testimony. And I've got a new song. And you know what? David, he's a pop star in Israel. I mean, this guy could write songs like it was nobody's business. He wrote the songs that made the whole nation sing. Perhaps that's why he set this psalm to a well-known tune. He wanted everyone coming to be able to pick it up immediately. There's yet future fulfillment in this psalm as well. It looks forward to the return of Jesus in his second coming to receive by the Jews as their Messiah. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him as you all, all of you offspring of Israel, rather. Jacob and Israel refer to the ethnic Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, who will be saved in that glorious second coming of Jesus. Today, as I mentioned earlier, there's a resurgence of teaching that when the New Testament mentions Israel, somehow it means all who are believers in Jesus, whether they are Jew or Gentile. They say Jesus was the true Israel and all who are in him are Israel and that there's no real um, place in God's prophetic plan for the uh, physical Israel, for the descendants of Jacob and, uh, and all. And that's just not true. We reject that. The New Testament consistently maintains distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, between Israel and the church. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. This is why so many people are confused about prophecy and especially the book of the Revelation, because they approach it as if Israel has no place in God's prophetic plan. And so when they read a clear passage like there are going to be 144,000 sealed from this tribe and that tribe and this tribe and that tribe and this tribe, 12 tribes of Israel, they go off on allegories and say, well, we know it's not really the tribes of Israel. Maybe it's the tribe you hang out with at Starbucks. Maybe that's your tribe of Dan. And it's like, what are you talking about? This is insane. But that's what happens if you don't believe there's any future plan for Israel like the Bible teaches. The church is going to be resurrected and raptured. And then what? Great tribulation will start at some point, And it deals specifically with Israel. It involves the whole world, Gentiles as well. But there is no church on earth during that time. And God is working to save his people, Israel. And I've always told you that if God doesn't keep his promises to Israel, you have no hope that he will keep his promises to you. We can't arbitrarily say God has set people aside that he promised to save. For he has not despised nor bore the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard a valid conclusion to a thoughtful person would be God has not despised nor abhorred this Jesus who's being crucified. He hasn't hidden his face from him. He heard him and is he accepting my, uh, his sacrifice for my sins and the sins of the whole world. 
My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The great assembly, obviously we talked about David having an assembly, but this probably refers to folks in the millennial kingdom who come from all over the earth to worship the Lord. For his part, Jesus gives praise to his father. What vows will Jesus keep? This is just a way of saying that he totally and completely and absolutely fulfilled everything in God's word. It's an amplification of his cry from the cross. It is finished or he has done this. William McDonald in his excellent Believer's Bible Commentary suggests that there's a change in speakers for the remaining verses of the psalm. He says, and I quote, now the Holy Spirit speaks, describing the ideal conditions that will prevail during the peace and prosperity of the millennium. Verse 26, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. And so this is a general summary of the conditions that will prevail in the kingdom. We won't achieve these conditions ever as men. It's going to require the righteous, benevolent theocracy of Jesus Christ. And something I realized this morning as I was, we were going through this. So if you're following the narrative of I'm at the cross mocking Jesus, and then I am sent back to Psalm 22, and I realize that I'm the mocker that David wrote of, and that this is really a prophecy because they're distributing his garments after having gambled for them, uh, then as far as I can tell, the Messiah of Israel is dead. And what happened to all the promises that God made to the nation of Israel? Well, now it picks up with the promise of the millennial kingdom and that there will be a kingdom. And so it gives me hope as a Jew. I still don't understand fully what's going on but I can understand that even though my Messiah is dying and is going to be dead in a moment, God is going to keep his promises. How is he going to do that? And when you start to hear in three days rumors of a resurrection of this man, I mean, if you, this is like the four spiritual laws or something. It's, it's like a step-by-step -step, uh, come to Christ uh, situation for people who are paying attention. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship all those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. This is simply a way of describing the frailty of human life. It is appointed to all men to die and then to go down to the dust. No one can keep himself alive, can be translated. No one can keep his soul alive. Spiritual life is in view. It's a spiritual life that can only be yours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, if you want to live forever, you need to come to Jesus. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord in the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Kingdom of heaven on earth is called the millennium because it lasts a thousand years. Multitudes will be born to human parents. There will be a great need for evangelism as folks will still need to get saved in the millennium. Jesus on the cross was therefore assure, excuse me, assuring the Jews <clears throat> that their promised kingdom was still to come. It must be postponed because, hey, you're killing me. But he will establish it. God was wonderfully enthroned on this psalm of praise as Jesus fulfilled it. He died on the cross, he was buried, but then as we sing, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He sits at the right hand of God the Father waiting to return. Can you see him enthroned now and forever? The more you do, the more you'll long for him. And by him, I mean to be in his presence. Whether the Lord takes you early 
or at the rapture, our ultimate hope is that we will be absent from our bodies and present with the Lord, that we'll have a glorified physical body. You know, we don't just live for 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. My mom's going to be 100 years old, and uh, it's a drop in the bucket. Well, that's a stupid thing to say. I mean, think of eternity. And so I don't know what the, the Lord has granted you to be your lot in life, but we're a future-oriented people. We live for eternity, and that's our hope, and that's our joy, that the Lord will come for us, and if he doesn't, he'll come to take us home. We'll be brought home uh, on angels' uh, precious arms. Amen?